Good job, kiddos. You guys are dismissed now if you want to go back to your class. You're dismissed. We will put that online for those of you wondering for your continued viewing pleasure. It's good stuff. Turn with me to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, if you would. John chapter 1, we're going to read the first four verses and then we'll also read verse 14. Gospel of John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, the life, and and the life that was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. God, would you help us to grasp this uh, paradoxical and yet glorious and beautiful and life-changing, indeed history-changing truth. Lord, this morning would you uh, send your spirit, as Ephesians 1 says, to enlighten our hearts, Lord, that we may grasp your glory to a greater degree, wherever we are, wherever we find ourselves, whether we don't, whether this is the first time in church ever or in years or we are seasoned saints, may we be confronted this morning in a fresh and a new, in a powerful way with you and your glory and your love as you come. Help us, Lord. This is your word. We submit to it. We ask you to speak to us. I ask that you would use me to that end. We ask these things all together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, um, man, so fun to see the kids uh, walk through the Christmas story and and mispronounce some of the words. But if we're honest, um, there's 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 kind of a lot in the Christmas story that that kind of is maybe not always confusing, but can kind of be lost on us oftentimes. Uh, anybody else um, confused as a kid or maybe even as an adult about NXLC Steo? NXLC stands. Anybody else? As a kid, in XLC stands. That's what I always heard, and it was really hard for me to move beyond that. And to a degree, I'm still distracted by that song just a little bit. Um, and there's others. I mean, it's, it's really, it, you know, so that in Latin means glory to God in the highest. But there's other Christmas songs that, that just didn't click a ton for me growing up. The, the Come, Let Us Adore Him and, and Silent Night, they, they seemed, if I'm being honest, they seemed a little anticlimactic. If, if I'm just being honest, because I was kind of like, all right, cool, so it's a baby in a manger. Like, it's, like, everybody got born. Like, I don't, what, what did he do? Like, can we just fast forward? And I've even heard people talk, like, I've even heard, like, church leader, other people say, like, we shouldn't make that big deal about, about Christmas because, uh, you know, really, we should just kind of fast forward and get on to the resurrection because that's where Jesus set himself apart in true victory and, and, uh, and excellence. And, and, and listen, there's, some, there, there's a misunderstanding of the virgin birth and a lot of theological depth there that, that makes that statement you know, 
untrue. However, I think it is reflective a bit of, of how the, the incarnation of Christ, the, the very truth that, that Caleb read earlier in Matthew uh, chapter 123, that, that when the angels say that there is going to be a Savior born, that his name will be Emmanuel, and that that means God with us, that, man, we miss we miss the fullness of that often, and, it, and we take it for granted, and because of, of, there's so many things, so many moving pieces going on at Christmas, and we talk about the secularization of that a lot, and that, that's certainly an issue, but even in the church world, I think we can kind of take for granted what is happening when Jesus is born in this humility, in this, this moment, in this weakness of an infant. And so what we hope to do uh, today, and we'll sort of look at a smaller piece of it Christmas Eve, and then we're going to look at the impact of it even next week as, as uh, this idea of Emmanuel, meaning God with us. What, is that, what does that look like? What, what, what does that mean that he came to be with us? What does it mean that he is still with us? And, and how do we just... Uh, Allow that to really be transformative in the season and not just be a kind of a yawning or a story that we've heard, but rather something that is transformative. And so, uh, because indeed, if, if we are not moved by that truth and, and if we're not compelled to fall on our knees and, and come and adore him, if, if that's not true, it's not because Jesus isn't exciting or because the Christmas story isn't moving. It's because we have either gotten sort of inoculated and used to it or we have failed to grasp what it means that, that indeed God has come to be with us. The title of today's sermon is, is Emmanuel, Glory Incarnate. Glory incarnate, because that is, is what is being said. We, we think about the glory of God and, and we, we celebrate that and sing about that often, Right, that's the, in Excelsis Deo is glory to God in the highest, and the, the, the refrain there is gloria. Like, we, we sing about that, and we talk about that outside of Christmas, but, and then we talk about Christ's coming, and we talk about, you know, the details around the nativity and all of that, but do we realize the, the incredible, mysterious, paradoxical even, and yet incredible reality that Christ, the glorious God of the universe, as it says here, the word became flesh. And so again, that is on a misunderstanding of us. It's not a lack of the goodness of the gospel. And so we'll look at, at this passage and a few others today to see, uh, to, to just kind of lean into this idea of, of Emmanuel, glory incarnate. And so as John says here, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That, that word there is capitalized. It's referring to Jesus. It's saying that Jesus was there in the beginning. If you go back to Genesis 1 and 2 in the, the, the story of creation, there is a plural uh, pronoun there, let us make man in our own image. There's a reference to uh, that often of a plurality. That's the Trinity. We don't have time to unpack all of that today, but, but just know that Jesus was there. And, and John goes on to say that that. Not only was he there in the beginning, that he actually was God and is God, and, and that all the things that were made were made by him and through him, that not anything that was made was made without Jesus' participation. And it says, in him was life, and the light, that life was the light of men, and that light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's just a sub, this is a side note, good news for 2020, just so you know, the darkness has not overcome the light. Jesus is still on the throne, and he will not be overcome. He will not be 
put out. Jesus' light will continue to shine. And so that's just kind of a, uh, not our, our focus for today, but it is indeed good news. But as you look at Jesus as the creator of all things, and you start to, if, you, if you're looking and, and, and you know, examining the fullness of scriptures, you start to see the glory of Jesus compounding because he's the creator of all things. And we know that. And again, that sort of gets disconnected as a theological truth. And we don't think about the impact of, of like, what does that mean? Especially when he comes near. I want you to think about the closest you've been to glory and not Jesus. I want you to think about like practical, like, uh, you know, like human glory, like fame or whatever, right? This is funny to me, but as I was thinking about Creator, I remember how excited I got and how cool I thought it was when I realized the creator of Dippin' Dots was from Southern Illinois. I just thought that was really cool as a kid. Because Dippin' Dots, like I got those at like, you know, amusement parks and stuff, and they were expensive, and they were really just fascinating to me. It's like, oh, that person was from Southern Illinois. And so now when I go down to like Paducah Metropolis area, like it just changed the view of that. Like, oh, this is, there's, there's something cooler about that. It's sort of added a glory to that area that didn't happen before, and that's a silly example, but maybe you have been around, you know, somebody that was, you know, participating in something greater. I know many of you grew up or related to or friends with David Lee Murphy, and that, like, that, there's, like, he's kind of, he's famous, right? People know him, and, and so there, there's that kind of piece. I want you to think about whenever you know that there's person, there's someone of, of, of stature and of fame, and, and when you have a chance to be near to them or you have a chance to just be associated with them, there's, that changes. There's something that you feel. There, there's a very tangible uh, feeling about that, right? And, and you can relate to that. I remember, um, I remember uh, one, one time on the way back from vacation, I talked my mom to, uh, into driving through Chapel Hill, North Carolina, just so I could get out and see the Dean Dome. If you don't know, that's where the Tar Heels play. Um, and if you don't know, they beat Kentucky yesterday, so just, just, just also for free, but I won't, sorry, Seth, I'm trying not to bring that up anymore. The altar will be open later, buddy. It's, it's all good. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to see it. They weren't even playing. I didn't get to see a game. I left it, but I just wanted to see that place because I loved it so much. I loved the Tar Heels so much. I just wanted to see where they play. I remember whenever I was like, I don't know, 10 or 11, I got to go and see Michael Jordan play, and he was probably from me to the back of the room. At one point, I got to go down as he was getting, and it was just like, the coolest thing to be near that level of, of, of frankly, glory, right? With a, with, a, with a lowercase g, but, but nonetheless, like that. And so, and when we see that Jesus is the creator of not flipping dipping dots, right? <laughs> of everything, right? Of all that we know. He should come, like, that aura, that, that, that glory, that presence, that excitement should be multiplied by infinity. Like we can't even measure that level of, of excitement to know if you knew that like someone, they're coming to town and there's that, that, that feeling, oh, they're going to be here, they're going to be proud, whatever. Jesus is the creator of all things. Anybody that you've celebrated with any level of talent or contribution to the world that has gotten their own level of lowercase g glory, guess where they got it? Jesus gave it to him, right? Michael Jordan's ability to play basketball, that came from Jesus. You realize that? The science that, you know, allowed that joker to create dipping dots, that came from Jesus, right? And, and whoever that is, like, and so we should be so incredibly built up with anticipation knowing that that is who is coming. That is who the Old Testament had been saying was coming. And, but here's the deal. It's not just about like, oh, there's a creator. Oh, it's just, it's not celebrity status for Jesus. It's not like that. It's so much more than that. As we look at the glory of God in the Old Testament, 
as we take an honest like, inventory of, of, of what that looked like to be near to the presence of God in the Old Testament, it changes Christmas dramatically for us. As you realize in the Old Testament, there's so many examples of, of the holiness of God. Whether an, Every time an angel shows up, what do people do? Oh, hey, what's up? Give me five. No, no, no. They hit their face, right? And they say, please don't kill me. Why? Because the angels, from being in the presence of God, come with such a, a glory, frankly. They're, they are reflecting, they are radiating from being in the presence of God. And, and whenever they show up to a, a human being, it is earth-shattering to that human being. And their instant response is fear. Over and over again throughout the Bible. But I want to look at just a few examples. If you remember Moses. Moses was, was given exceptional uh, access to God and to his, his glory, not the fullness of his glory, but, but much of it. And so from the very first time that, that we see Moses encounter God, it's through this thing called a burning bush. It's this crazy story, right, in Exodus. But, but this bush is burning, and Moses realizes it's not being consumed, and so he sees it, he should go investigate. And, and then God begins to speak to him, and he says this, do not come near, Moses. Take off your shoes. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Moses is then tasked to go and, and set his people free, and, and we, we know much of that story uh, through Exodus. But if you remember, after God's people are brought out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness and God is binding them together and bringing them as his people, he says, hey, I'm going to come down and, and, and reveal myself. I'm going to come and, and show up and, and speak to you on the mountain, right? And as he is doing that, he's, he, tells, he tells Moses, hey, have the people go get ready because I'm going to come down on Mount Sinai. And this is Exodus 19, and, and, and I'm going to be there, like his presence will be there in the sight of all people, verse 12. But, it, but here's what he says. You shall set limits for the people all around, taking care that they do not go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Okay, so he says, hey, I'm going to come down, and everybody's going to be able to see that I'm there and present on top of the mountain. But here, you need to be careful. They need to go consecrate themselves. They need to be you know, ceremonially clean before that, and they better not come too close. Right? If you've seen celebrities, there's the, the ropes, right, that, that keep them away, you know, keep the, you know, normal folk like you and me away from them so we don't, you know what I mean, we don't get too close, we don't get tackled by their security or whatever. God says, I'm going to come down, I'm going to show up, and when I do, you need to make sure there's a perimeter, you make sure the people are clean, you make sure they don't come cl too close, because if they do, or they touch the edge of the mountain, the mountain of which God was going to come down on the top of it, if they touch the edge of the mountain even, they shall be what? They shall be like, you know, put in timeout or told to, hey, get back, try again. No, no, they shall be put to death. To death. He says, no, no hand shall touch him. Not, and that's not even talking about God. That's talking about the person who touches the mountain. Somebody touches that mountain, don't touch him. It's like electricity, right? Somebody gets caught with electricity, they're being electrocuted. You don't run up to him and lay your hands on him trying to pull him off, right? Why? That's going to transfer to you. God says, don't even touch him. Stone them or shoot them. Someone touches the edge of the mountain where God's come down, stone them or shoot them because they got to be put to death. It's, it's crazy. He says, whether it's a beast or a man, even an animal, accidentally, no, it doesn't matter. They shall not live. 
more famous story that actually we talked a little bit about last week was Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is given this vision where he's in the throne room of God. He's just able to see the, the kind of the throne and the train of God, not his fullness, not the fullness of the Lord. And, and, and yet, this experience is so overwhelming to him as the angels are, 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 are crazy looking angels, right? There's, they got six wings, two that cover their face, two that cover their feet, and two they fly, and they're, yell, they're, they're singing. And, and every time they sing, every time they say, holy, the, the, whole, the whole, not just the room, but the foundations of, of the temple shake. I want you to picture that. I want you to try to just imagine that, that in the throne room of, of, of the Lord, this is what the picture is, that there's these angels. And as they sing, as their voice, which is going to just be exalting and honoring the Lord, so they are a lower being than, than God. But as they speak, as they say, holy, boom, like the whole foundation shake, holy, boom, and it shakes. And, and, and Isaiah is not like, woo, we got, I got VIP seats, right? Like, I'm excited. I get to see, like, nobody's going to believe this. What does he do? He, he hits his face, and he says, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He knows his fate is death in that moment, that he deserves nothing less than that. The story goes on. God sends an angel to get a coal out of the fire to come and purify him. And, and, and that's an amazing story. I want you to see, I want you to begin to see the glory that is around our God. And, and we go on to see uh, that as the Ark of the Covenant was a part, like that was, you know, where God's presence was, was symbolized and dwelt and they were carried and there were so many instructions around the care for it and then certainly not to touch it, right? So there it was incredible. You, you, if you try to read through Exodus and and Deuteronomy and some of that, you're going to see incredible details and instructions about God's assembly of the temple and the care for the ark and all of these things. Well, it's because God went to great lengths to keep his holiness appropriately viewed and, and revered by his people. And one of the, one of the rules was you, you can't touch the ark. And there's this crazy story in 2 Samuel chapter 6 where there's a, there's a guy named uh, Uzzah, and he's, he's part of the, the people who are carrying the ark on poles, and, and one of the animals stumbles, and so Uzzah puts his hand on the ark, seemingly accidentally, or, or, or maybe to secure it, maybe reflexively, and God kills him. He strikes him down because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. We see the Old Testament, we, we see the high priest after the temple is built, the tabernacle is there, there's a place inside of it where the ark is, is kept called the Holy of Holies. And these, no one was able to go in except the high priest and only once a year and only after a significant, a, a, a significant and, and painstakingly detailed purification process were the high priest able to go into the Holy of Holies. And they had to offer purification you know, offerings for the purification of their own sins before they could go into the Holy Holies to offer purification for the people's sins. And, and to enter into that was, was an incredible, terrifying ordeal. There's a tradition that said that they would uh, tie a rope around those guys' ankle in case they died so they could pull them out. Why? Well, the logic tracks, because if, if they die and you go in there to get them, well, guess what? You're going to die, and you just get this pile of bodies, right? And so that, that's, that's where that tradition comes from. There's a, there's a piece of rope around their ankle. That if, if they stop jingling, uh, you can't hear them anymore. You're just going to pull them out. So everybody, you know, the Scripture doesn't support that. 
right? There's very specific instructions about what the high priest should wear, and the rope around the ankle isn't one of them. But I think you, you begin to, even with that idea of, of, of this, this holy of holies and entering on that and, and what, what all that took, you begin to see the, the magnitude of the glory of our God is, 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 should be growing in your mind. It should be increasing in your mind that, the, that this is the God who dwells, as First Timothy says, in unapproachable light. That that is him who lowered himself and, and as John says, put on flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us or tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son and from the Father full of grace and truth. We see in Hebrews that uh, the letter starts out by talking about Hebrews chapter 1 says that, that long ago and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Listen to what it says about Jesus, that he is the radiance of the glory of God. That that glory that we just saw in the Old Testament that was so to be revered and, and to be approached with such caution and was deadly to those who did not do so, that that glory is found wrapped in flesh in the person of Jesus. That the, the radiance of the glory of God, it says, Hebrews 1, 3, and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And by, after making purification for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on Hi. So that is talking about after Jesus. And so I think that's important to see as well is that because I think sometimes we go, okay, that's the Old Testament, you know, God of holiness and glory. Well, you know, that was kind of chilled out when Jesus put on flesh, right? That he kind of laid some of that aside. And, 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 and there's, there's a little bit, we'll get into that in just a moment. But, but I think sometimes we wrongly, we don't take the holiness, the righteousness and the glory of Jesus seriously enough, right? Because we, we look at it we don't know how to translate that from the baby in the manger to this glory that we just saw in the Old Testament. So sometimes we think, okay, well, now he's taken on flesh, and you know, he's, he's sort of chilled out a little bit. That glory, that radiance has been dulled a bit by, by the flesh that he took on, and, and, and we, we, we kind of, you know, okay, like it's, it's a different era, it's a different world. But here's, here's what Hebrews says, is that after making purification of our sins, that means, or for our sins, you know, going to the cross, dying, being buried, being resurrected, after that, it says he goes and sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here's the deal. Jesus today, that glory is on full display. That glory from the Old Testament, that glory that we so knew from the Holy of Holies and from the mountain of, of, of Sinai and, and, and from all of these stories, Isaiah 6, that glory is still on full display and Jesus steps back into it. In fact, he's praying in John 17 that, that God would restore the glory that he had before they made all the people, like the same glory that he had when he was there in creation. Jesus is saying, would you restore that to me now in the presence of my people? Like there, That's where Jesus is now and we need to know that, that it's not just he was there and then he took on flesh and he got calmer. No, no, no. He took on flesh for a purpose, and we're going to come back to that. But we need to know that now he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. And here's the deal. We're celebrating Advent, which means the coming of Jesus. Well, guess what? It's just the first Advent, right? He came. He came in humility. He came in a manger. He came as a babe. And he grew in wisdom and stature. He lived a sinless life, the life that you and I could not live. And he went to battle with our great enemy and allowed himself, in fact, destined himself for the cross, 
so that his flesh might be offered in our place so that he could conquer sin and death and offer us salvation and victory. And, and, and now he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, as we looked at a few weeks ago. He, he's going to be there until all of his enemies are made his footstool, and then guess what? He's coming back. He's coming back, and this time it won't be in humility. This time it won't be wrapped in swaddling clothes. It won't be in a manger. It won't be without pomp and circumstance. This time it's going to be incredibly glorious. That glory will be on full display. Revelation chapter 19, you can turn there with me if you want, or you can just listen. I think it'll be on the screen for us. But when we talk about that, that God is going to come back, and we talk about this often when we try to get right understanding of, of his second coming and what he's going to do with this world. It's not a burn it up, get us all off of it, and go to heaven. He's coming to, as a refiner would purify, the world. He's coming to do away all with all that is evil, all that is wrong, all that is rebellious. And then we're going to have heaven here as he's going to bring heaven to bear on earth. Like that's where we're headed. But we don't, we talk about that he's going to do that, but how, right? How's he going to get rid of all that evil? How's he going to get rid of all of that is wrong? How are the people that have not, you know, trusted him as their savior? How will they be dismissed? Like what, what does that look like? What it looks like is his glory is going to be on full display, no longer shrouded in the humility that he came in the first time, but rather on full display. And that incinerating, terrifying, all-consuming glory that we see from the Old Testament that we're cautioned not to get too close lest we die, that glory will be on full display when Jesus comes again. And just like that, because of his glory, all that is not in Christ, all that is not under the blood of Christ will be incinerated. That glory will accomplish justice in a moment. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, talking about that moment when Jesus comes again, and here's what he will look like in that moment. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse with an exclamation point. This is awesome. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. When Jesus comes back, He's going to be in judgment and making war. Listen, I'm getting ahead of myself. He could have came that way the first time, and that's what part of makes so glorious. That's what we're going to get to. But when he comes, he's going to be making judgment and making war. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. That means any earthly glory, any earthly authority that you have known before Jesus is just more than, better than, greater than, many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. <clears throat> and the name by which he is called is the word of God. The word is coming once again, just like he came. He's coming once again. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. We're following him on white horses. This is a scene, y'all. You need to picture this. You need to use your imagination as we talked about in the podcast. You need to picture this. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread them. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh has a name. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There will be no disputing who has showed up that day. There will be no debate. There will be no more obscurity. 
There will be no more manger and stable. And there will be absolute full attention. Every knee will bow. Every one of them will bow in that moment in fear, just like Isaiah only multiplied because it won't be shrouded. It won't be shielded in any way. It will be on full display. And his glory will consume all that is not covered by the blood of Jesus. Church, this is our Lord. This is who came This is who was lying in that manger. This is who condescended himself from that level of glory to enter into our mess. Why? So he could save you and me. This is what what should bring us to, to overwhelming worship and adoration and bended knee on Christmas. Because it wasn't just like he said, oh, you know what, I should go and take. No, no, he leaves, like Philippians 2 says that, he emptied himself. He didn't consider equality with God something that needed to be grasped or that he had to hang on to, but rather emptied himself and, and took on flesh, entered into our mess. Does that mean he stopped becoming God? No. Does it mean he got rid of his, you know, God-like attributes? No. He remained all that he was and, and yet became what he had never been, which is flesh, just like you and me human. So he retained all that he was as God, and yet added to that all that we are as humanity, as humans. That's the glory of the, of the incarnation. And when we see that, it changes how we view Christmas. It changes how we view the baby in the manger. It changes what hope we have. It changes what response we have. It changes everything, frankly. Everything. Because it's only with God's glory in full mind, or the fullness of his glory in mind, rather, that we are able to fully rejoice and receive the gift of Christmas. Because as I said, he would have been totally justified to skip that whole deal and just come as judge and executioner. You realize that, right? We weren't owed Christmas We're not entitled to Christmas. We're not entitled to salvation. You realize that, right? One of our Advent devotionals started out, uh, I think the day one, like talking about how we need to realize our need for salvation. Our hopelessness needs to be reflected upon and, and, and fully examined before we can really rejoice in the glory of Christmas because we didn't, we weren't owed that. He didn't have to come that way. He could have just showed up Revelation 19 style and been totally justified in doing away with all of us. No one having anywhere to run, no one having any refuge, no one having any hope. That would have been totally justified. Why? Because he's a holy God and we're a sinful, rebellious people. And that's all of us. That's not just the really bad people. That's not just the, you know, whoever them is in your mind. No, no, no. That's, that's, that's you. That's me. That's all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we deserve death. That's the reality. That's the truth. And so, the glory on on that end of creation, all throughout, he existed in such glory. He, he, He remains in that glory now, and he's going to come back in the full display of that glory. Now we get a we get a clearer picture of what it means in the middle. Whenever he 
condescends, enters in, steps off his throne, and takes on flesh. And the word became flesh. Now we can rejoice. Now we can, we can, we can feel that on another level. Now we can allow Christmas to indeed be worshipful. Because though we did not deserve it, he came nonetheless. John 3, that famous passage of, of chapter 16, we're going to look at that on Christmas Eve. But verse 17, the one that follows that, says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that through the world he, in order that the world might be saved through him. Church, this is good news. Paul says in Timothy that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We rejoice in Christmas because we are the ones that caused the need for Christmas. It wasn't God's fumbled plan. It wasn't him just fixing something that he messed up. No, he made it good. He made us good. And we jacked it up. We messed it up. It is our sin that created the need for a Savior to need to come into the world. This is what culminates as the true beauty of the incarnation. This is why, uh, go ahead and grab your communion elements because it all culminates here together as we, as we think about the reason he came. He wasn't going to try to take over. Try to, no, no, he knew from the beginning that he was born to die. He was born in that manger, in that humility, to die in humility, to die in disgrace on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 2 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Why? To make propitiation. That's to satisfy the wrath, right? To... to to pay the penalty for the sins of the people. For because he himself had suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It says that he had to become like us. He had to take on flesh. He had to participate in the flesh like us so that he was able, that he it was then qualified to make propitiation, to make satisfaction of the wrath of God on our behalf. And it's this that we should be remembering as we come each week ready for communion, as we come each week looking at this broken bread, we remember the holiness of God, the glory of God is unapproachable. It is deadly to a sinner. And yet, Jesus made a way. That holy of holies I was talking about that the Israelite people knew so well is where God's presence dwelt and only the high priest could go in there and that's where God was, but we were separated from the people. This glorious verse in the end of Matthew, uh, whenever Jesus breathes his last and the earth shakes once again and, the, and that curtain, that room, that holy of holies is separated by this huge heavy curtain. Guess what? It's torn. Not from some guy in there that's really excited, you know, from the bottom. It's torn from the top 
down. Why? God is saying, okay, forgiveness is purchased. A way has been made. Now you may come as my people. You may boldly, it says in Hebrews 4, to approach the throne of grace. That boldness better not be on your own merit. That boldness better not be because you think you've, you've earned it, you got it figured out, you've done pretty well this week. No, no, no. That boldness is right here on the broken body of Christ. Jesus says, hey, when you take this, remember my body broken, take and eat. And then likewise, he says blood is the only way that sins are forgiven. The priest had, were familiar with that, throwing blood on the altar on their behalf so that they could go and bring it on the behalf of of people they, they familiar with slaughtering animals, the blood running down their hands all over the altar. The Old Testament's a bloody book. Why? Because God wants us to know that our sin is repulsive to him. Our sin is awful. And it deserves blood. God says, I'm going to make a way. Jesus says, I'm going to make a way. This is my blood. This is the cup of the new covenant. This is where our hope is found. My blood shed for you, poured out for you for the forgiveness of sin. Take and drink. Church, may we be a people who don't cheapen Christmas with anything less than glory incarnate. Anything less than than God Almighty taking on flesh. Colossians 2.9 says that in him the fullness of deity dwelt bodily. That that God, the creator of all things, the glorious one, comes into our midst with us. Man, what grace. What John says, we receive grace upon grace. He's full of grace and truth. That On that day, when Revelation 19 comes to fruition, his glory will be on such display that there will be no sinner who can stand in his midst. The only hope we have is, as John said in in chapter 1, that we would be born again. Verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That this is what Jesus came, is to make a way so that we would be born again. And if we come and receive Jesus as that Savior, repent of our sins, trust him, make him the Lord of our life, that on that day when he does come back in his fullness of glory, we will be able, not by our own merits, but because of his grace, because of our new nature, because of being born again, we will be able to stand and rejoice and even meet him in the sky and come back and be a part of his army as he makes this world ready for his eternal kingdom. That's our only hope. Not doing better, not trying harder, not self-help, not getting whatever. Our only hope is to come to Jesus and be born again not with any pretension that we deserve it, but only that he gives it by his grace. Let's pray. God, help us. Just real simply, Lord, help us. We need it. Our minds can't comprehend it. Our hearts can't bear it. And 
And yet your word says it's true. That your love is on full display when you send Jesus into our mess. When you send the word, the eternal creator of all things, when, when you send him to enflesh himself to become like us. So may your spirit come and, and work in our hearts today. Lord, for those of us that, that may have never known you as our Savior, would you give them the faith to receive you today? Lord, may you bring them from darkness to light. May you give them new birth today. Lord, right in this moment, may they believe in you and confess their sins and come and receive you today. We would love to see that and celebrate that today in this Christmas season.